Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. You're listening to An Amber A Day, the Functional Nutrition Podcast, and I'm Amber Fisher. I wanted to do another podcast today talking about my experiences as a woman with PCOS going through infertility treatment. I think I have a unique perspective on this because I am also a functional nutritionist, and so many of you who are listening to this in podcast format already know this. Those of you who are watching on YouTube, this may be new information for you, but I am a functional nutritionist in San Antonio, Texas, and I see clients for a variety of nutrition issues. Primarily, I'm focused on women's nutrition, particularly fertility and infertility conditions. PCOS is something that's super close to my heart, and I work with a lot of women who have that condition and are navigating that condition, so... I do a lot of that stuff. I also work a lot with autoimmunity and things like that. So I think I have a particularly interesting perspective on fertility treatments with PCOS because I come from the nutrition world where I think you see a lot of misinformation on the internet, particularly from some of these holistic type nutritionists about how You can, number one, cure your PCOS, and number two, conceive completely naturally. That is true for some people. I've seen it myself in my practice. I've worked with some women who were struggling with infertility. They got their health under control. They started really working on their diet, and before they knew it, they conceived naturally, had healthy pregnancies and babies. Some of them might be listening to this right now. And those people, of course, are the big success stories that we always like to talk about as nutritionists and practitioners, but they also aren't everyone. And I think there's this idea out there that PCOS is this really easy condition to just quote-unquote fix or quote-unquote cure as long as you know this secret pathway to dealing with it. And what I've seen over the years of working not just with women who have this condition, but also with myself, is that for many of us, PCOS is always going to be a struggle and a battle that we have to overcome. And sometimes we have to use certain medical interventions, even though we may not want to go there, in order to conceive children, in order to maintain our health, etc., etc., I've been through this battle myself. I was diagnosed in my early 20s. I'm in my 30s now. And I've been through the whole gamut of not just fertility treatments, but also PCOS-related issues. I had endometrial cancer when I was 25, which is a condition that occasionally is exacerbated by PCOS. 
So I've been through the full ringer of what you can expect with PCOS. I've been overweight in my life. I've been normal weight in my life. I tend to be a more normal weight person, partially because I'm so dedicated to nutrition and health, and that's part of what I do for a living, but also because I naturally genetically tend to run a little bit thinner than some other women who have PCOS. And so I just wanted to talk today about what that was like for me, my experience going through not just being diagnosed with PCOS, but also um, particularly the IVF experience, because we did everything from Clomid to Femara and then all the way to full IVF with frozen embryo transfers. So today I'm going to focus on, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it was like going through IVF. And I'm going to go over the basics of some of the fertility treatments that I did do myself. But mostly what I want to talk about is what that experience is like, how I think nutrition helps, and how I think it doesn't help, and just kind of my general opinions and experiences about the whole deal. So being diagnosed as a young woman, this was something that I always knew was potentially going to be a problem for me. I did not come into my diagnosis of PCOS with any preconceived notions about what my life would look like. So I just assumed, although I'd always had you know issues with my hormones, I always just assumed that getting pregnant would be um, totally you know normal experience for me and that I wouldn't have any issues with it and all would be well. When I started to get into nutrition, it was actually because I was diagnosed with PCOS and the doctor told me that it was very likely that I would have fertility issues and that if I wanted to have children that I should start young because it might take me a while. And he mentioned that PCOS is a condition that is also improved by diet. And so I started doing tons of research on that. Diet and nutrition was not something that I was interested in at all before I was diagnosed with that. In fact, if if you knew me prior to that diagnosis, I um, the only experience I had had with diet was doing diets where you know I had lost fifty pounds as a teenager, but I did that basically by cutting everything I ate in half and exercising a lot. So it wasn't really anything customized or specific or focused on healthy food or anything like that. So I had no interest in any of that stuff until I was diagnosed. But when I was, I was opened up to this whole world that's out there that many of you who stumbled on this video probably are very well versed in this world of influencers and doctors and nutritionists and all these people providing answers or claiming to provide answers for PCOS. Later on in life, as I became a nutritionist and got into my practice working with women with PCOS, the biggest thing that I discovered over time is that all of us are so different. PCOS is really this basket diagnosis that they place us in and they say, you know, refer to this type of diet, low carb, low glycemic diet, and you'll improve your symptoms and potentially restore menstrual function. And that's really, you know, take birth control. That's the other thing. Those are the really the only advice that we get. And in fact, a lot of doctors that people that I saw myself told me that diet played no role at all in PCOS and that there was really nothing I could do diet wise to help. So I think you hear these two different sides. There's the, we can cure you, we can heal you side, and then there's the, there's nothing that can be done 
don't even bother side. The balance that I've struck as a nutritionist is in realizing that while there is no cure for PCOS and while many women with PCOS, myself included, will always probably struggle with the symptoms and the underlying issues, nutrition can play a huge role in making you overall healthier, more vibrant, more capable of maintaining a pregnancy and potentially being successful in fertility treatments if that's the route that you end up having to take. And I'll caveat that by saying that there is a group of women for whom weight loss and focusing on diet does make a really profound impact on their PCOS symptoms. And that's the group of women who did not have PCOS symptoms and developed them later after gaining a significant amount of weight. So there's a group of women that they were normal weight as teenagers, always had normal menstrual cycles, they gained a lot of weight and now their menstrual cycles are off and they see cysts on the ovaries and all that stuff. And the reason that that condition is probably happening is because the excess insulin resistance in the system from the weight gain is causing the body's hormonal balance to be off. And so there's been a lot of studies that have been done that have showed, okay, you can lose 10% of your body weight and then your menstrual function will be restored. And I've seen that in my practice with several women who were always normal and then they gained weight and then we helped them lose some of the weight. And again, they were normal and were able to conceive on their own. So if you're in that group of women, this doesn't necessarily apply to you. This is really advice and information for women like me who have some sort of underlying genetic issue. It maybe hasn't been pinpointed, but it's something hormonal that's deeper than just a weight issue. Certainly PCOS does cause you to hold on to weight, and that can be very difficult because you may eventually start to look like that group that that advice would apply to. And definitely, if you are overweight with PCOS, even if it's a genetic issue, working on getting your weight down to normal does help with a lot of things, your insulin resistance, etc. I could go on and on about all that stuff, but that's not really what I wanted to talk about today, so I'm not going to go into too much depth about that. Suffice it to say that if you're one of the women that has PCOS and it's something that you've always lived with, that's been going on since you started having menstrual cycles or even before, then this is more what you know an experience possibly might be like for you. I do know women like me who conceived naturally. Um, a lot of times it happens spontaneously and unexpectedly, and that's great. That was not the case for me. That was never going to be in the cards for me. And I did have to go through the full gamut of fertility treatments in order to conceive my son, who is my first and last uh, pregnancy and baby. And so for those of you who, who feel like that may be in the boat that you're in and you feel like you may be headed towards IVF, I just wanted to talk to you about what that was like for me and... Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? 
And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. what your experience might look like. So after years of trying different fertility treatments, we did several rounds of Clomid and several rounds of Femara. I was really excited about those. For some of those cycles, I wasn't monitored. For some, I was. It was never successful. I would always get a dominant follicle, but would never release the follicle. So it would end up as being this large cyst that we would then have to wait several months for it to calm down so that we could try again and it was just becoming a very frustrating experience also around that time i was diagnosed with endometrial cancer which was something that i had been struggling with um, the beginnings of for several years it's something called endometrial hyperplasia is how it starts and for some people it develops further into a type of cancer some people it doesn't. Um, for me, it did. So around that same time, I was also diagnosed with that and had to take a few years off of fertility treatments to deal with that situation and get that under control. So at that point, we were told that we really needed, you know, for the safety of my body to go directly to IVF rather than doing other cycles with gonatropins or Um, you know, injection cycles and things like that that you may have heard of that you can do in an IVF clinic. Basically, they can pump you up with hormones, help you release an egg, and then artificially inseminate you. And um, it, it helps increase your chances a little bit more than just a medicated cycle. That wasn't an option for us, so I can't speak to that experience, but I know many women with PCOS do go that route. For some, it works. For some, it doesn't. For us, we went straight to IVF after those experiences. And what I loved about IVF was actually that I felt like I had some sort of control over my fertility like I hadn't in years or ever, I guess. I hear a lot of women who have negative experiences of IVF and they feel really sad and distraught about the whole issue. Since I was warned by a very sweet doctor at a young age that fertility was going to be an issue for me. And because I went through the experience, I think, of having endometrial cancer, which really made me look directly in my own soul at the possibility of not having biological children, having what I considered the privilege of being able to do IVF, being able to cobble together the money, although it was very difficult, being able to pursue that, I felt like was really a privilege and a gift. And so Although it had its hard moments, I was also really excited about it and really enjoyed it. Um, So I hear a lot of women saying that, you know, it's super painful and they feel awful and terrible and they hated it. That wasn't my experience at all. I actually loved doing IVF. And even if it hadn't worked, I probably would have done it again if I could financially come up with the means. I think the biggest burden and hurdle with IVF is the financial aspect because It's actually a pretty easy experience comparatively to just the constant not knowing what's going on in your body. 
you at least start to get some answers, which is really encouraging and interesting. And a lot of fertility doctors will say, and my fertility doctor told me this, that it's actually pretty easy for women with PCOS to get pregnant via IVF because the women who who especially need IVF are women who have even more serious issues than PCOS. And PCOS is what he said, kind of an easy condition to deal with. So I felt like that was really encouraging. And that was certainly true for, for us. It took us a couple of rounds and we got our baby. So... I'm speaking from the perspective of having a condition that's somewhat easier to treat with IVF. Other conditions are more difficult, and I can imagine that going through several rounds of IVF and having no success, the financial burden and emotional burden of that would be major. And so I don't want to, definitely don't want to downplay that. But as a woman with PCOS, if you're in overall good health, what I was told is that you can expect, you know, about a 70%. Um, success rate after at least a couple of cycles. So more than likely you will get pregnant at some point with IVF if PCOS is your only issue. So that was encouraging from the get-go. My experience of PCOS and IVF was that once I had tackled the, the hurdle of the financial issue once I kind of wrapped my head around that, because in the end, it ended up costing us about $40,000 total when you included medications and the multiple transfers and freezing of the embryos and all that stuff. So once I got over the initial like, whoa, of how much it was going to cost me, I had already come to terms with the fact that it was going to be physically a strain and that it might be emotionally straining, especially if it wasn't successful, but I had reached this point in my fertility journey where I had done so many things and it hadn't worked that I had almost become numb to it. And in a way that, that actually served me well, I think the body or the mind probably does that to protect us from just the overwhelming onslaught of constant negative emotion that you might get if you were so fully invested in every single cycle. So I certainly, at the beginning of our fertility journey, had a lot of stuff that I had to overcome emotionally. By the time we had gotten to IVF, I almost was, I had almost given up. And you hear a lot of women say this, that they had almost given up and then they get pregnant, right? Which is kind of interesting and weird. And I don't know what's going on there with that, but that was the case for me. I had almost given up. This was something that we had said, okay, if we haven't had a kid on our own, by the time we're in our 30s, we're going to go ahead and do IVF, like they say. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't work, then we're not going to have kids. Maybe we'll adopt down the road, but we're just not going to worry about having a biological child because it's just not in the cards for us. So that process of coming to terms with infertility takes different people different lengths of time. But I do think it was important for me to be in that place when I started IVF because I needed to just be balanced. I needed to just be okay with it. I had a lot of friends and family telling me that I needed to be super positive and um, you know, keep a positive mental outlook on the whole deal. And I felt like that advice was kind of insensitive because if you've been through infertility, you know that keeping a positive outlook is like basically impossible after a while. 
And it's frustrating to hear it because it doesn't, maybe it does make a difference. I don't know. Maybe the women who just believe that everything's going to work out for them, it works out for them. But I spent many years being that type of person and it never worked out for me. And so I sort of feel like it's insensitive advice and I didn't appreciate it. So the biggest stressful part of IVF was actually the fact that all of our families knew what was going on. People knew we were in the middle of a cycle. So we had no privacy. And people were really great about like trying to give us space, but yet it was like, you know, they knew that we were going to have to go and see if it had worked or that we were having our transfer or whatever. So it was a little bit stressful being the center of so much attention like that. So the experience of IVF. What happens first, at least in my case, was that we went in and met with the doctor for a few hours, kind of went over the whole process and what it was going to look like and what we would experience us going through IVF. I was under the impression that we would just be doing like typical traditional IVF where you would go in, they'd take your eggs out, and then they, you know, a couple days later, they'd transfer them back in. With PCOS, they don't like to do that. They like to do frozen transfers to prevent you from getting ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which is where your ovaries get overwhelmed with so much hormone that they bloat up and your whole abdomen gets bloated and you feel really terrible and it can actually be really dangerous. So they like to let women with PCOS's bodies kind of calm down because a lot of women with PCOS have a high AMH and AMH is a, stands for anti-malarian hormone. It's basically a marker of your egg reserve. So women with PCOS, it's actually kind of a condition of over fertility rather than under fertility because we actually make and have a huge egg reserve. So my AMH was like 30 something, which was really high. And what that meant is that I was very susceptible to getting overstimulated, to making too many follicles, and that's not what we wanted. So we started with a medication regimen that was very small. Um, what I was told by the doctor was that if I had been more overweight, they would have started with a larger dose because the more fat is on your body, the more resistant you can be to the medication. But for me, we, I was, at the time, I was in really good shape. I was a normal body weight and everything. And so they wanted to start small with me. We did have to bump up a little bit because it was going a little bit too slow. But it takes a couple of weeks. They pump you full of hormones and then you're, and you keep going in and getting checked every couple of days. So I found that really fun because I enjoyed going in and seeing the follicles you know, get larger. And um, it was definitely stressful, especially at first when things weren't moving. But as soon as we bumped up the medication, it started working and I started feeling better. So I definitely had a few down moments during that process where I felt like, oh, great, here's another thing that's not going to work for me, you know. Um, but in the end, we got 18 uh, follicles. So it took a couple of weeks and then they, what they do is they schedule you for a transfer day or not for transfer day, sorry, for egg retrieval day, like the day after your follicles are perfect. So they, you have to inject yourself at this very specific time with another hormone and then go in the next day and they retrieve them. Throughout the process of building the eggs, you're on different medications. I was on Minipure. And so you, I had to, uh, well, my husband did it for me, but you inject yourself in the stomach 
every day. I believe it was twice a day that we did that. And um, you, and then you do that other injection to release the eggs and that one was in the back. And then 24 hours later, we had our, our retrieval. I did get some ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Um, even though we didn't do a transfer immediately or anything, it was just a big hormonal burden on my body. So I did experience that. That was not fun. Um, but basically the way I experienced it, because mine was pretty mild, was just, I was just huge, hugely bloated. I looked pregnant. Um, it was very difficult to hide and very awkward because I, you know, I'm a nutrition professional. So the way that I look is a big is important for my job and seeing new clients and I could tell they were looking at me like, what's going on with her? You know, um, is she pregnant or what? So yeah, I looked pretty pregnant and it hurt a little bit, but it wasn't terrible. The most frustrating part about the IVF experience was the waiting part because what I didn't realize before going into it is that fertility clinics, a lot of times can only take so many women at once because they wanna make sure that each of them, that they have time to do all the procedures that are necessary. And so we had all the testing done a couple years before. And so that's really the first step. If you haven't even gone to a fertility clinic before, the first time you go in, they're gonna recommend that you do all these different tests to make sure your fallopian tubes are open and your uterus is in good condition and all that kind of stuff. And I had already had those tests before. So we didn't have to do that, but that would have been an added weight to the process. But we had to wait a couple of months just so that they could fit us into the schedule. So those couple months of waiting, they put you on birth control and that's just to kind of even everything out and keep you stable so that they can immediately start the process of, in, of building the eggs and they don't have to wait for another menstrual cycle and stuff. The most frustrating part about the process was the waiting. It wasn't the experience itself. The injections aren't easy to do. They're definitely not your favorite part of the day. Minipure burns a little, and um, the more fat you have on your stomach, it helps. But it's sort of like an itchy burn. And that's the one that I hated doing because it was in the stomach. But all of that really, it only takes a couple of weeks to build up all your eggs. So that really wasn't too bad. Before I went into the IVF experience, I didn't know how long that took. I thought it would take a whole month. So for it to only take a couple of weeks was kind of like, wow, this is over really quick. The frustrating part was just the waiting because for a lot of fertility clinics, they can't just fit you in to start right away. They first have to do testing on you, and that can take a couple of months. They have to test and make sure that your fallopian tubes are open and that your uterus is in good condition. So I would recommend that if you're thinking about starting IVF at a certain point, if you kind of have it in your head, like we had it in our head that we wanted to do IVF at the end of 2018. And it ended up that we didn't actually finish the process up until 2019 because we started later than we thought we would because we had to wait for the clinic to be ready for us. And we actually had already done all of those tests previously. And so they were still useful. I had to redo one of them, but all of them were close enough that we could go off of them, like the fallopian tube test and stuff. So if you haven't done those, that's a great place to start because they're 
my experience of the fertility clinic was that they weren't trying to pressure me to to do it. They were just giving me, telling me what it would be like, how much it was going to cost. So I found out exactly how much it would cost at that clinic. And there are some differences between clinics, I found out. And they gave me a, a schedule, a timeline, and they kind of told me next steps. So if you're on the fence about it and you're nervous to go in there because you're not quite ready to do it, Going in and having a first appointment and finding out what's involved in the process and then getting scheduled to do all those preliminary tests is a really good place to start. And that way you'll be ready to go whenever you're really ready. So the frustrating part was waiting. We had to wait a couple of months before they could even fit us in to the schedule. So we were on birth control. We, I say we, it was me. Uh, I was on birth control for, uh, I think it was a couple of months while we were, they just like to keep your hormones steady so that they can start you immediately when they're ready to fit you into the schedule. So they did let us know up front, like this is when you're probably going to get started. And after the egg retrieval, the frustrating part is waiting to find out what happens with your eggs. So for us, we were going to go into frozen cycles, which they like to do with PCOS. They only like to transfer one embryo now. So if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to transfer two or I'm going to transfer three, they really don't recommend you do that unless you're older or you have other conditions or you've done IVF before and they think it'll increase your chances. For young, healthy women with good egg reserve, they recommend a single embryo transfer because it tends to be safer and it tends to be more, in the long run, more effective. And we elected to do that as well because we didn't want um, to potentially put twins at risk or anything like that. So after we found out about how many embryos, or sorry, how many eggs were retrieved, so they retrieved 18, only 12 of them were mature, so the other ones were discarded. And of those 12 mature, only 10 fertilized correctly. We did the process where they inject the sperm into the egg, so that was an added cost, but it helped make sure that more of them fertilized than maybe would have if they had been left to their own devices. And I should mention that we didn't have any male factor infertility issues as well, which I know can change the process. But because we just wanted to go and do use every piece of technology that was available to us, we figured if we were going to spend the money, it didn't really matter to us to spend an extra 6000 or something like that to make sure that we had the best possible chances. So we did all the extras. So we did the stuff that they recommend for, you know, if you have male infertility where they inject the sperm into the egg and other things like that. Uh, they, they hatch the egg for you, all that kind of thing. So after they had fertilized the eggs, 10 of them fertilized normally. The other two, I guess they just fertilized incorrectly. I don't really know the details on that, but those were discarded. So we had 10 um, left and then it was a waiting process to see which ones would make it to day three, which ones would make it to day five. When it got to day five, six embryos were left. So we were excited about that number. We thought, oh, yay, we're going to have six little in-babies to potentially transfer down the road. We were thinking about, you know, putting them on ice and different things. And then we got the results of the genetic testing. So if I remember correctly, I know after they get to day five, that's when they take the genetic material to test and then they freeze all the embryos. I believe it was a couple of weeks later that we got the genetic testing results. 
And we found out that of the six, only two were genetically normal. And I'm really glad that we did that testing. I know it's not always 100% accurate. There are some um, people who disagree with doing it, and there's a lot of opinions about it out there. But we felt like it was technology that was available to us. We wanted to use it because we wanted to have the highest chances we possibly could. And we're glad we did it because for me, it looks like you know, although I can produce a lot of embryos, producing normal embryos, which is really the goal, is more difficult for me. It makes sense to me when you think about the female body is really meant to produce one embryo, or sorry, one egg, one good quality egg a month. And in this process of IVF, we're trying to get the body to make as many quality eggs as we can. It makes sense that it would be difficult for the body to make more than one or two quality embryos. But it's also definitely something that other women can do. I didn't have uh, the reserves to do that. And, um, you know, I think that may have been why some earlier fertility treatments weren't successful for us as well. So who knows? There's a lot of mystery with all this infertility stuff. But in the end, we had two genetically normal embryos. They were sitting in their little ice cubes and waiting to be transferred. And we had to wait another, uh, I think it was another two menstrual cycles or something like that before we could actually do the transfer day, which was really frustrating because we were like so ready to go. Once we had the transfer uh, for the first one, what we did for that was we I had to take estrogen pills to build up the lining. And then about five days before I had to start progesterone shots. And that was to help you know, solidify the lining and make it ready for an embryo to attach. We did the transfer in February and um, I waited all the way until the day before they were supposed to do the blood test, which at my clinic, they made you wait 14 days, which I've found out is a really long time. Most clinics make you wait nine because, you know, theoretically, if you're transferring a five-day embryo, it should it should latch on in a couple of days and start producing HCG. So you should be able to see it on a blood test within like seven days, nine days is being conservative. So for them to wait 14 days was a really long time, but I waited all the way until then. And I just couldn't stand the idea of going into the office and finding out that it was unsuccessful. I figured I would rather just know now. So I took a pregnancy test and it was negative. It was pretty devastating. At that point, we had one embryo left. I went back on birth control, waiting for my body to calm down so that we could potentially try again in another couple of months. The embryo that was left was graded BC. So the embryo that we transferred first was a grade A embryo. So that one looked the best. You know, that one looked like it was going to be the most successful, and that's why we went with that one first. The embryo that was left was graded BC. So even though it was genetically normal, it wasn't graded very high. And I figured that, you know, even the doctor works kind of like, yeah, it may not work, you know, but it's worth trying. And so I trusted him and we decided that we were gonna do that. One thing that we did differently for the second round though, and I would recommend if you are a woman with PCOS, because with PCOS, a lot of women tend to make not enough progesterone. Some of that's a problem with ovulation. If you don't ovulate, then you don't make progesterone from um, that ovulation. But if you 
do ovulate sometimes and your progesterone is still kind of low, that also can happen with PCOS. As a woman in general, I tend to be very estrogen dominant and that is partly why I'm so predisposed to these different estrogen-based cancers. So for me, I knew that progesterone was an issue for me. And the doctor offered this new test called an endometrial receptivity assay, which is basically where they do a couple of biopsies of your endometrium in between um, some hormone therapy just to see what your lining does because his thought process was that maybe the problem wasn't with the embryo, maybe the problem was with the uterine lining. And he was definitely smart to think that. I was also thinking the same thing because I had always had issues with my uterine lining, so it would make sense that I would have issues during this process too, that I would not be normal. I will probably do another video about what it's like to have endometrial cancer as a young woman, but one of the negative things about it is constantly having to have endometrial biopsies, which I will tell you, having been through labor, is more painful than labor. Um, I'm about to have another one, and I this will be my first experience having one after having a child. I've heard they're easier after having had a child, so I hope that's true. But pre-having a child, those biopsies were some of the most traumatic, painful events of my life. So... I was not too keen on doing two of them in a row for an experiment. I told the doctor, let's trans let's let's just behave as if the results came back that I needed more progesterone. Let's try that. And he thought that that was okay, so he gave me a a higher dose of progesterone and more days on the progesterone than was typical. And we were going to just try it with this embryo. If it didn't work, then I was going to do the test over the summer. Well, long story short, I'm not sure how short this is going to be because it's already like 40 minutes long. But long story short, that transfer worked. We had um, seven months later had a son. He was born early and Many women who go through IVF do experience um, some issues holding and maintaining the pregnancy. There can be issues with the lining. So for us, we had some unexplained um, preterm labor and I did have my son at 30 weeks, but he was perfectly healthy. He spent a little time in the NICU and now he's, he's a perfect angel. So I love him so much. You can probably hear him in the background playing with his little toys. So that is just a basic overview of my experience going through IVF as a woman with PCOS. I will probably at some point break these things down into more detail for people who are interested in that type of thing, but I don't want to go on too long and talk about too much stuff that's not interesting to you. Suffice it to say that IVF was one of the most interesting and I'll even say it, kind of fun experiences of my life. I highly recommend that if you have the financial means to do it and it's something that, you know, you've exhausted your other options, I think it's worth doing. It's so nice to have some of the pressure off and to feel like you're doing something that you know has a higher chance of success. For us, it was successful. We were one of the lucky ones. I know that's not the case for everybody, and my heart goes out to you if you're still waiting, if you've been through IVF and it hasn't worked for you. I know that that is emotionally devastating, and I definitely don't want to rub my success in your face. 
I don't think that there's anything super special about me or any reason why I should have had better luck than anyone else with PCOS. I do think that focusing on my diet and health and nutrition and making sure that I was as healthy as I could be pre-fertility treatment was part of the process of why I did so well with it. You know, I wasn't able to cure or heal myself, get pregnant naturally or anything like that, but I did get pregnant via IVF relatively quickly, and I truly believe, otherwise I wouldn't be in the career that I am, that paying attention to my underlying health and doing whatever I could that was within my control did make a difference for me. There are a lot of podcasts that I've already done, a lot of articles that I've done on my website on this topic, on nutrition advice for women with PCOS. It's I work one-on-one with women with PCOS. So if you're interested in that portion of it and what you can do, um, whether you're ready to work with somebody or you just want to get more information about some general advice that I have for women with PCOS, I have a lot of resources for that already. My YouTube channel here is very new, so there's only a couple of videos at this point. But take a look at some of my other resources, specifically my website where I blog and have been blogging for a few years now, and you'll find more information that might apply to you. If you have any questions for me, any questions for the podcast, please send me an email at anamberadaypodcast at gmail.com. I love to talk about anything functional, nutrition related that I feel I have some expertise on. There are a lot of different nutrition topics that could be discussed And I am not an expert on everything, so if I don't feel like I have something to add to that conversation, I certainly won't. But anything that I do have insight on, I'm happy to talk about and give ideas about and resources for. So if you want to send me an email there, I would be happy to answer your questions. Thank you so much for listening today and for watching me, and I hope that you have a great weekend. Thanks so much. If you learned something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both, I'd love it if you would leave me an iTunes review and share this with a friend. If this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer, there is a Google form that you can use to ask me any question you want, and I might answer it here on the podcast. I do it all the time, and I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.